Morning. If you are uh, here as a guest this morning, we certainly welcome you. We are grateful that you are here. Please make sure that you do make me out a little visitor's card, if you would, from the back of the pew in front of you. We would certainly like a record of your attendance, and that would be awesome. We thank you so much for being amongst us this morning. We're going to spend most of our time this morning divided between the books of Philippians and the book of Acts. If you would like to be turning to Acts to begin with, chapter 16, we will get there eventually. Simply to set the stage for Philippians, if you will. You know, over the years, I've heard a number of sermons, and probably you have too, examining several of the very different very powerful, very beautiful, and very prominent themes that weave their way through the Apostle Paul's divinely inspired epistle to the first century Church of Christ that worked and worshipped in the city of Philippi. You know, for a congregation that came into existence being forged in the fires, as it were, of unlikely evangelism, outright antagonism, and totally undeserved punishment and imprisonment, this little congregation in Philippi, or the epistle to it, has served over the centuries to bring a lot of encouragement and joy and strengthening of the faith to God's faithful. You may recall that it was by a divine vision from God that the Apostle Paul first wound up in Philippi during his second missionary journey. We would see that if we were to read Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 12. On the Sabbath day there, as we read on in Acts chapter 16, we see that the Apostle Paul went down to this place where women prayed by the riverside and he began to speak to the ladies there, and one of the ladies, Lydia, listened to the things. God opened her heart, and she listened to the things that the Apostle Paul had to say. And when he got done preaching the gospel to her, she was baptized into Christ. She and her household, and she, at that point, offered the Apostle Paul a place to stay there in Philippi. And... He took her up on that, and she furnished him that home as he continued to preach and teach in that city. This is the beginning of the congregation there in Philippi. After a while, as he's preaching and teaching, there arose opposition to his and Silas' efforts, and they were arrested. Again, in Acts 16, as we continue, they were stripped, they were beaten, and after many stripes, the scripture says, was put upon them, they were thrown into prison. Not only were they thrown into prison, but the jailer, having received this command to guard them securely, put them in stocks, an, an instrument of torture, and put them in what we might call the dungeon, the lower, lowest rooms or bowels of the prison, as it was. And we pick up in verse 25 with our reading. After these things, it says, At midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled... 
drew his sword, was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Why don't you stop and think about this for a minute? Jailers in those days were responsible for their prisoners. If their prisoners got away, then their own life was forfeit. Now, Paul had the perfect opportunity here because this jailer had had him fastened in stocks, put in the inner prison. Granted, he was operating, as it were, on behalf of others, but still, he had done this to the Apostle Paul. What do you do to somebody who treats you like that? Especially when you see them about to get theirs. I'll tell you what the Apostle Paul did. In the love of God, he said, don't do yourself any harm, we're all here. Paul could have kept his mouth shut and let this guy fall on his own sword, but he didn't. Don't miss that. You see, this is how you win souls to Christ. As we move on, verse 29, Then he called for a light, that is the jailer, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now he's not saved at this point because he doesn't know what to believe. They haven't taught him anything yet. Paul simply says, Believe on the Lord and you will be saved. Well, it doesn't show him he's saved. It doesn't show him his rejoicing because he doesn't know what to believe yet. He hasn't been told the story. Some of our denominational friends and neighbors will say, Aha, see, all you got to do is believe. Well, it's true that Paul told him he needed to believe to be saved, but he hadn't told him what to believe yet. So it goes on from there. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. You see, then Paul and Silas told him what he needed to believe. And to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed his stripes. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. You see, in that gospel message that Paul told him, Paul told him, you've got to believe. Then he took him aside and taught him the word of God and told him what he needed to believe. And apparently the jailer did believe it because then he and his whole family were baptized. So in that message, Paul must have said, you've got to be baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. See, it doesn't say he believed until after his baptism because baptism is a part of legitimately believing the gospel message. But again, I want us to understand something. I want us to not forget the Apostle Paul's attitude toward the jailer. This is how you win souls to Christ. It's not just about quoting scriptures regarding the love and forgiveness of God. It is about living and loving and showing and exhibiting the love and forgiveness of God toward your enemies. Those who have mistreated you. And those who are undeserving as well. That's how Paul reached him. Well, the earthquake didn't hurt either, but still. So finally we see the Apostle Paul and Silas released as we continue on to the end of this chapter, verse 16 of Acts. And in verse 40 it says, So then they, when they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. 
Thus are the forged in fire beginnings of this congregation of the Church of Christ in first century Philippi. What began down by the riverside, preaching the gospel and Lydia's conversion, and then the subsequent events of Paul and Silas being jailed, and the jailer's conversion to Christ, that's how the church in Philippi began. As I said over the years, I've been exposed to a number of sermons, just as I'm sure that you probably have, examining several of the very different, very beautiful, very powerful and prominent themes that, that weave their way through this very personal and loving little epistle the Apostle Paul. For example, you may have heard it preached from the book of Philippians about joy. And that's a good theme that runs through the book of Philippians. In fact, the words joy, rejoice, and rejoicing together occur a grand total of 15 times in these four little chapters. Joy, rejoice, and rejoicing 15 times in four little chapters written, by the way, by a man who was once again in prison when he writes this to this church that had one of its first converts or some of its first converts from that prison experience the first time. Paul's in prison again when he's writing joy and rejoice and rejoicing to the Philippians. As Barclay says, joy is one of the key words of Philippians. And Barclay gave a beautiful outline of the joy Paul communicated in this loving letter when he noted the fact that this Christian joy, listen to this, includes the following. Number one, the joy of prayer, Philippians 1 and verse 4. The joy that Jesus is preached, Philippians 1, 18. The joy of faith, Philippians 1, 25. The joy of seeing Christians in fellowship together, Philippians 2 and verse 2. The joy of suffering for Jesus, Philippians 2 and verse 17. The joy of news of a loved one, Philippians 2.28. The joy of Christian hospitality, Philippians 2.29. The joy of a person who has been baptized into Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.1 and 4.1. The joy of the man who has won a soul for the Lord, Philippians 4.1. And the joy inherent in every gift, Philippians 4.10. Yes, you may very well have heard sermons over the years tracing this theme of the book of Philippians as being joy. Another theme you may have heard is one similar to the one that Denny Petrillo actually preached last year at Affirming the Faith, one that I came back here and did a copycat sermon of because it was so good. I didn't do it as good as Denny did, but preached about how this letter may very well have been written to correct the problem between Syntyche and Euodia, the two women who were having the dispute there in Philippians chapter 4 in the first few verses. And Denny Petrillo outlined wonderfully and beautifully how that may have been the entire point of the entire epistle. But this morning, I want to examine another major, powerful, vitally essential theme in this little book. It's one you may not have heard before or thought about before. And yet it is a message that can be seen in every chapter and indeed serves as our title, our vital title this morning. And that is this. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. 
That theme runs through this little epistle. Turn with me, if you would, this morning from the book of Acts and to the book of Philippians. And let's begin in chapter 1 as we see this theme unveiled again and again and again. Philippians chapter 1. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. Philippians 1, beginning at verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. You know, in those days, it was not a life-prolonging event to be really close to the Apostle Paul. <laughs> the Apostle Paul was a dangerous man to be in fellowship with, as it were, or to be a partaker with in the things that he was preaching and teaching and doing. That was putting yourself on a danger list. And yet he says to them, I am so grateful that you are partners with me. You're in fellowship with me in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. And we're together in this thing. But you see, when you were together with the Christians, the Apostle Paul and the Christian message of the first century, it could cost you everything. We would note momentarily, if you'll just flip over there with me to the book of Hebrews for just a moment in chapter 10, look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning verse 32. He says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. When Paul's writing to the Philippians, he's writing to those who were his companions, those in fellowship with him, those who supported him, those who were like him. Verse 34, the writer of Hebrews says, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted, look at this, joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. What would you do this morning? If you knew that by being here in church, that when you got back to your house, the American government was going to have confiscated your house and everything in it, because you chose to be in worship. What would you do? That's what was going on with these first century Christians. Whether they were supporters of Paul's, or the supporter of, of those like-minded Christians, as are mentioned in the book of Hebrews, he said you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You were partners with those in chains for the gospel message. What was the theme? Whatever it takes... Whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. We see this theme come out as we move on in chapter 1 of Philippians to verses 12 and 13. Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. 
Paul, we often think of as a captive, but it was Paul who had a captive audience and those that were chained to him. He said, everybody down here, every one of these guards knows why I'm in chains. He preached to everybody he possibly could, even in chains. And look at the effect it had. Look at Philippians 4, verses 21 and 2, on the back end of this little epistle where it says this, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Paul actually preached to the guards, preached to the palace guard, the hierarchy of the guards, as it were, those of the praetorium, the personal guards of Caesar. Paul preached to all of them. Preached. He's in chains for preaching, and what's he doing? He's preaching the gospel. And... Some of these guards, some of Caesar's own household, have listened to him and have obeyed the gospel. Do you know what it could cost them? Do you know what it could cost Caesar's own family members if they're caught as Christians? As it says in your bulletins this morning, as Brother Joshua Ortiz wrote, the gospel of Christ had the power to save some in Caesar's family. It also had the power to transform them into bold, unashamed Christians. How do I know? Well, Rome believed Caesar was a god, but some of his own relatives, Philippians 4, 21 and 2, denied that claim by following Christ. They were also bold because they risked sending greetings to other Christians through Paul's letter. Do you know if Caesar found out about his inner trusted guards and about his own family members and somehow gets a hold of this letter and finds out that some of them are Christians, do you know what it could have cost them? Everything. Whatever it takes. Whatever the cost. Heaven will surely be worth it all. As we move on, we see that theme made clear once again in Philippians 1, 27 and 8. Paul writes, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. For the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, that from God. I want us to really take a look at verse 27. Paul says, you've got to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. How many congregations of the Lord's people do not strive together as one? How many congregations of God's people cannot all seem to get on the same page and pull together toward the same goal? You know what? we got to get our egos out of the way and all get on the same spiritual page, get rid of the misunderstandings, all get together, all pull in the same direction, all of the same mind, all trying to accomplish the same goal, working together, not apart. But you know, sometimes that takes a lot of work to swallow our own pride, 
to swallow our own egos, to go along and work together with somebody who may have crossed us in the past, somebody that we may have had a disagreement with in the past, somebody that we might not think has, has quite got such a good idea as we've got. But Paul says you all need to be of the same mind, on the same page, doing the same thing. Sometimes we've got to swallow those egos. Whatever it takes. Whatever the cost. Heaven will be worth it all. And if we're going to go to heaven together, then we must get together here and be of the same mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Sometimes the hardest thing we have to do is swallow our own pride. We continue on, and we notice in verse 29, it says this, 29 and following, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in love, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Do you see the sandwich? Do you see the sandwich? Notice verses 27 and 8 of chapter 1. He says you've got to be one mind, one spirit, striving together. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you've got to be of one mind, one spirit, working together. Did you notice what's in the middle? Did you notice the meat in the middle, verses 29 and 30? <laughs> Sometimes it's an affliction, it's a suffering to all get on the same page. That, that 28 and 9 stuck in there, how he says there's going to be some suffering involved here. There's going to be some, some sacrifice. There's going to be some conflict. Yeah, there is when we all have to get on the same page and work together. There's going to be some struggle with that in some corners. Yep, that's right. But you know what? Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. And the absolute epitome, the absolute epiphany, the absolute proof of this particular theme of whatever it takes, whatever the cost, we see in the very highlight here of this entire epistle in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, where he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. One version says he emptied himself of equality with God. And coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Why do you think this follows right along with the two sections of text? Chapter 1, verses 27 and 8, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that talk about the fact that we've got to get on the same page and be of the same mind and work and pull together in the same direction. Why do you think this follows it? I'll tell you why. 
Because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient. Because Jesus did not hang on to his equality with God. He let some of that go. Yes, he was God in the flesh. But he emptied himself of total equality with God. And he came down... He came down from his home, he came out of his comfort zone, as it were, and he came down here and he put on flesh, and he became very humble to God, and he became obedient to God. We need to be humble and obedient to, the God, to God to the point that we are willing to work together, pulling in the same direction, the same way that God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit are one, John chapter 17. Therefore... Uh, let's go to verse 8 again. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, for that reason, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As I said, Jesus left his home, left his comfort zone, as it were, left that place that he was comfortable in, took on human flesh, left equality with God behind, to come down here and to seek and to save the lost. Was it worth it? Are you grateful this morning he did it? Was it worth it? Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, to reach out to a lost soul in order to seek and to save them with the gospel, whatever it takes is worth it. And you can see how that applies to us in our evangelistic efforts. We have to leave our home. We have to leave our comfort zones behind. We have to do what Jesus did. The whole point here. And it's not easy. And it's not easy to get out there and knock doors and talk to people. And it's not easy to try to set up Bible studies. It's not easy. Dying on the cross wasn't easy either. Whatever it takes. Whatever the cost of getting somebody else to heaven is worth it according to Jesus because that's exactly what he did for you and I. No price, nor effort, nor personal sacrifice is too great or too high to pay to see that others get to heaven. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And that means obeying and doing and working and serving together all working in the same direction for the same cause without griping and grumbling and kicking and complaining. Verses 12 through 18, not my opinion, scripture, verses 12 through 18, especially verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing, etc., etc., etc. Why? Because whatever it takes, heaven's worth it. We see the same theme again expressed repeatedly in chapter 3 as we move on. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul talks about all of his earthly accomplishments, all of these incredible things, his, his spiritual heritage, all of the accolades, all of the, the incredible earthly accomplishments in the world of, of spirituality at that time that he had accomplished. 
But you know what he says about all of his nice little polished up spiritual awards? You know, his little wall of fame that he had. Yes, I'm being facetious and illustrating, yes. But all of these things where he says, I was this and that, and I was this, and I was the, I was the top of the food chain here. I, I was just the greatest thing that there was. Verses 1 through 6. You know what he says about that, don't you? Verses 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count them as rubbish. I count, he says, verse 8, all things. But Paul, wait a minute, all those earthly accomplishments, all those, you know, trophies, all of the, that, everything you had going, he said, look, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I look at them like the garbage, or I, if I read this exactly, count them as rubbish. You know how I'd summarize that verse? You ought to by this point. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. That's verses 7 and 8 of Philippians 3. As we read down through verses 12 through 16 of Philippians 3, Paul would show us there that it requires constant study. It's not just a Sunday morning thing in Bible class. It requires constant study and Christian growth. Verses 12 through 16. Well, yeah, but you know, I don't, I don't have time to open my Bible, and I bring it on Sunday. I even open it occasionally. I mean, come on, Doug, be real. Verses 12 through 16. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will be worth all that study time. Verses 17 through 21. Paul says it requires setting your mind on things above and standing against the influence of those brethren who are not doing that. We cannot say, well, you know, it's okay for me to just, you know, hey, it's okay. So I don't ever open a Bible, except in church, maybe. But neither does he. You sound like three-year-olds, you know. Neither does that person. We cannot let those who set their mind on earthly things and things other than spiritual things, influence us to do the same thing. We must continue to set our mind on things above. Philippians 3, 17-21. You know why, don't you? Because whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. Going to heaven takes settling our differences of opinion and personality conflicts in a very positive, biblical, humble, obedient, and God-ordained and approved way. Philippians 4, 1 through 3, Syntyche and Euodia. We have got to settle our personal differences of opinion and personality conflicts. We've got to settle them and get on with the work of the kingdom. Well, you say, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that because they made me mad. Really? You ever make anybody mad? Did you want them to forgive you? The point in Philippians 4, 1 through 3, between these two ladies, these, these co-workers of Paul's, the problem here is that their personality conflict is stopping the work that is so much more important, the spiritual work of the kingdom. These two have got to get together, get through it, get over it, and get on with it. Well, that would take work. They'd have to actually face each other. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, 
heaven will be worth it. You may have somebody that you don't want to work with in the church. You may have somebody you struggle with, have a problem with. We probably have all been through that at some point in our lives if we've been a Christian very long. Okay. What God say to do about it? You deal with it or you dump it. You go see them or you let it go. Then you get on with what's really important and you get on the same page with the same mind and you go in the same direction and you get to work for the kingdom. Whatever it takes to make that happen, heaven's worth it. We continue on, verses 4 through 13 of Philippians 4. Going to heaven requires focusing on the good news. Hello, talked about this in Bible class. Going to heaven requires focusing on the good news, well, that which is good and right and pure and lovely and the blessings of God perpetually, rather than being consumed with the bad news and the worldly evil that is going on all around us. Yes, it does. Let's turn the TV news off and get into our Bibles. That's verses 4 through 13. Listen. You say, well, that's not always easy. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. Do you understand the circumstances under which the Apostle Paul was writing this? Do you think that bad worldly news is only in our generation? Do you remember he's in jail for preaching the gospel? Nobody's going to come in here this morning and arrest me for preaching the gospel and ain't going to arrest you for sitting here and none of you are going to get home today and find out that the United States government has taken your homes because you were here in church. That ain't going to happen. Praise God, that ain't going to happen. But with them it was happening. So let's not sit here and say, well, you know, there's just so many bad things going on. Let me tell you what. Personally, if I think I had the capability to go back in time and live in those days for about an hour, and God gave me the option and said, okay, choose your time frame you want to live in. You want to go back to 2018, or do you want to stay here? I think he'd be talking to my back instead of my face, because I'd be headed for that time machine or whatever it was. Paul had a lot of bad things. He could focus on his chains. He could focus on these little churches that were being persecuted by the Roman government. He could, he could focus on all of the horrible stuff that was going on and people being killed by Rome for no reason. But what did he say? You wonder if he had chains on. I know, you know, you wonder if he had chains on as he wrote Philippians 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, clink, there's the chains, wait a minute. And again I say, rejoice. Whatever is good, oh, these things hurt. Whatever is pure. Whatever is right. Oh, there goes a rat across my foot. Wish I could sleep on my own bed, not this pile of straw or whatever. Whatever is right, let your mind dwell on these things. And whatever you have heard and seen in me, I have learned the secret of being content. Boy, 
be nice to eat on my own schedule. Haven't eaten since they brought that slop in here yesterday. I have learned the secret of being content. I can do all things. I can feel that wound on my back beginning to bleed again. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We think we have it bad? Don't tell me the Apostle Paul had no bad news to be consumed with, okay? But he didn't. Yes, it can be difficult, but you know what? Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will be worth focusing on the good because the bad will consume us if we don't. Finally, Paul reminds them at the end of the epistle that when he left the Macedonian region after the Philippian congregation was first established there that no other church helped him financially other than them in verses 15 and following. See, all Paul had to look forward to after the establishment of this congregation Back in Acts 16, where we began the sermon, I realize he's writing to that congregation later on, but, but back there in Acts chapter 16, after Lydia and the jailer were converted and the Philippian congregation was started, you know, Paul didn't have a whole lot to look forward to that was good. All he had to look forward to was what he was soon thereafter exposed to and suffered and was later told awaited him as he persisted in preaching the gospel. What was that? Well, in Acts chapter 17, there were militant mobs that were made angry by his evangelistic efforts in Thessalonica, and they later followed him and ran him out of Berea as well. That's Acts 17. As we move on, there were riotous, blasphemous, militant, and aggressive rejectors of God's word, which he sought to spread in the cities of Athens and Corinth. And we read about those in Acts 17 and 18. You know, sometimes we don't want to go up and knock a door. We don't want to talk to somebody about Jesus because we're afraid about what they're going to do. Afraid they might say no. Afraid they might laugh at us. But you know what? That's nothing compared to what Paul went through when he tried to spread the gospel in Athens and Corinth. He had life-threatening opposition to his evangelistic efforts in Ephesus as well in Acts 19. And finally, I want to show you what else. Look with me in Acts 20. Look what he was later told. This is what he had to look forward to. Acts 20, beginning at verse 22. Paul says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except, yeah, I don't know what's going to go, but except this one thing, I know this, God's made this pretty clear. I don't know much about what's going to happen, except, this I do know, that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth all of it. That's Paul's message. I 
just want, I don't care about the chains. I don't care about the tribulations. They can throw everything they got at me. I don't care. The only thing that matters to me is finishing this life and being joyful at the end. And the only way that's going to happen, the only way I'm going to find that joy, the only way that I'm going to hear, enter the joy of your master. The only way I'm going to be able to write to Timothy that I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. The only way I'm going to have that joy in my last day is to know that I served God every day no matter what the struggles were. Whatever it takes. Whatever the cost, heaven's going to be worth it. Finally in Acts chapter 21 beginning at verse 11 we see Paul at the home of Philip the Evangelist where we read these words. Acts 21.11 Start in verse 10 rather. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. They begged Paul, don't do this! They may have even said, don't you remember what they did to Jesus? Please, don't go to Jerusalem. Look what's going to happen to you. Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever it takes. Whatever the cost, Paul says. Heaven's going to be worth it. That is the message of the epistle to the Philippian Christians. That is the message of the life of the Apostle Paul. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven is surely going to be worth it all. That is the message of the New Testament church of Christ. That is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2. Whatever it takes. Getting them to heaven is going to be worth it all. The question this morning... Is that truly the message which God and others see driving and fueling and propelling and motivating your life toward heaven? Is that what other people see when they look at you? Can they stand back and say, wow, that person is willing to go through whatever it takes. They're willing to pay whatever it costs. They're looking forward to it. They know heaven's going to be worth every struggle. Every pain, every inconvenience, every sacrifice, they just get their eyes on heaven and they go through life rejoicing. Because if that is not the message that others see in our lives, it may well indicate that we're not headed quite as well in the direction we think we are. Listen, I'm not trying to minimize struggles and hard times. And this isn't just about evangelizing. This is about everyday life. This is about rubber meets the road. When you leave here this morning, I know some of you, there's no way that we've got this many people sitting here in these pews and somebody's heart isn't breaking this morning. Over something. 
There's no way with this many people in these pews that everybody here, life is just going perfect in every aspect and phase for you this month. Well, maybe this month because it's a brand new month, but certainly not over the period of last month, okay? We've all got our struggles. We've all got our heartaches. We've all got our heartbreaks. We've all got our frustrations. We've all got those things that we're trying to do for the Lord. And it seems like every time that we try to do something for the Lord, somebody's ready to slap us for it. But the message I want you to leave here with this morning is this. Whatever it takes. Whatever the cost. Personally, financially, spiritually, time-wise. Whatever it takes. Whatever the cost. Heaven will surely be worth it all. Does the scripture say that Jesus keeps track of even a cup of cold water given to a little one? Does the scripture say that? He's keeping a record, people. There is no good deed that will go unrewarded. Walking with the Lord is about understanding that whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven's going to be worth it. I beg you to take those words home with you today and to be encouraged. If there's anybody here this morning that has maybe never been baptized into Christ, never repented of your sins and been baptized into Christ because maybe, maybe your family doesn't believe that way and maybe you know it's going to cost you something. Maybe you haven't studied enough and, and you need to pay the price and do the studying because if that's what it takes to go to heaven, heaven's worth it. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that hasn't been all that faithful in church because you had other things to do on Sunday morning. Maybe it's your only day off. You know what? Whatever it takes, heaven is worth it. If you have a need for any of those things this morning, baptism, prayers of the church to be stronger, whatever it takes for you to step out into that aisle this morning, whatever it costs you not to leave here, in the same condition you came in, lacking something that you know you need to get you to heaven, whatever it takes to get into that aisle and get into this front pew and get the prayers or get baptized or do whatever you need to, whatever it takes, heaven will be worth it. We come to the front as we stand and sing.